What's up, everybody? I'm TJ. And I'm Kelsey. And we are the, the Nashville, Nashville Wine Duo. Duo. All right. All right. We are back. Another killer episode. We are so, 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 so excited to yes. have this man. You've been talking about this for like I have. weeks. He has. I've, He's I've been, been talking about this for weeks. He's really so excited. excited. <laughs> yeah. Besides wine, I love my whiskey and my bourbon. I love cheese. <laughs> We're <laughs> we eating cheese, cheese too. <laughs> so we have the man here, yeah. Andy Nelson, co founder mm -hmm. and head distiller of Nelson Greenbrier. Yep. One of the Nelson brothers. Yes. Happy to have you on, man. We're going to yeah, do a whiskey you. and cheese pairing. We're so excited. Yes. How are you, Andy? I'm great. Great. Yeah. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. You are our, our first distiller, like yeah. our head distiller on the podcast. All right. Do I get a medal or something? We're going to give you a button. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, button. You'll get a button before you leave. <laughs> Good. Yes. Good. With uh, our faces on it. We wear it everywhere. <laughs> It just hasn't come in yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll ship it to you when they arrive. <laughs> oh, no, it's an honor to have you on. And, and like Kelsey said, I've been so excited about this. And just to learn the history of Nelson Greenbrier and to just taste along with you. Yeah. You know, you brought you brought some bottles. And so this is an honor. So we, we appreciate your time and just yes. coming out here to Franklin, Tennessee to, to do this podcast with us. Yeah. Yeah. yeah good deal. <laughs> and funny side note, he came 45 minutes early, which is totally okay, but I was in my pajamas <laughs> uh, at noon on a Monday. <laughs> Real life. <laughs> TJ had an eye appointment this morning, so he got lucky. He was already all ready. I just like took off to the back room. <laughs> but you know in, what? In fairness, I will say I thought I was 15 minutes late. Yes, so, I know. Yeah, a little bit schedule is thrown off. I know. It's a great but way okay. to start a podcast. Oh, good. It made me feel like I, I like that you guys are just, it's in your home. So it's like yeah. very comfortable. I wasn't, yeah. didn't feel like I was at a doctor's office waiting or something. That's good. I could have yeah. just stayed in my pajamas. Yeah. You could have. I would, would not be offended. <laughs> no, we are very uh, chill around here. Yeah. So, you know. Yes. But, well, let's dive right into it. What's the first question you want to ask him? I want to know the history. How did you get into the whiskey game? I know it's a family thing, you know. Yeah. Uh, but tell the story for people that don't know the story about Nelson Greenbrier and how, sure. how it all came about. And yeah, well, we've got I've got kind of a, a an elevator pitch. I've got basically a, a 15 second all the way through a two and a half hour version. So I'll figure something out in the middle between those two. But uh, basically, the whole thing started because my brother Charlie and I um, did not know growing up about the history of our family and company. Really, we had we'd heard kind of rumors that we weren't sure if we believed. Um, and those rumors included things like th there was some some fabled story about one of our ancestors falling off the boat with the family fortune in gold sewn into his clothes. And that is a story that we did not. I know, at least for myself, I did not really believe because my dad told this story when I was probably like seven, eight years old. And he was a you know big storyteller guy and definitely of the ilk of storyteller to go by the mantra of, you know, never letting the truth get in the way of a good story. And so I knew that and my mom, cause my mom would tease him about his stories, how he's embellishing and this and that. And so I, as like a seven, eight year old thought dad was just making things up, you know? Uh, so that was the lens with which I saw or heard this story that dad was telling about that. And he knew almost no details beyond just what I told you, someone falling off the boat with the gold. 
so there's that, but we didn't know that that had anything to do with the, the family business because we'd heard a separate kind of rumor that there was some sort of whiskey thing in Greenbrier, Tennessee back in the day. So that was it. I didn't know growing up where Greenbrier, Tennessee was. Uh, didn't know what this whiskey thing was, if it was uh, legal at all, or just a big moonshine operation, or or a small moonshine operation. We just didn't know. So, so you know, fast forward to 2006. So my brother and I um, were on a trip. So our dad had gone in with some friends of his, three three buddies, to buy a full cow worth of meat from a butcher in Greenbrier, Tennessee. So he asked if we wanted to come along with him to pick up his you know, quarter of the cow worth of meat. So we said yes. And so it was summer of 2006. So it was me, Charlie, mom and dad. We go up there and we stop to get gas just before we get to the butcher's house. And we're filling up on gas. And at the corner of this gas station, it's a Sitgo station in Greenbrier, Tennessee, at the corner of Springfield Highway and Main Street. And there's this big green historical marker that says Nelson's Greenbrier Distillery on it. And, you know, when we saw that, you know, the hair on the back of my neck kind of stood up and we... Anyway, we read on and it said one mile east on Long Branch Road, Charles Nelson opened the Greenbrier Distillery. And it goes on to talk about the, you know, the rest of the history, the economic prosperity. It brought the town and county, you know, finest producers of, you know, whiskeys and fruit brandies, et cetera, et cetera. And so this was just this very surreal moment where we were like all these little details and rumors and ideas that had been kind of long forgotten in my head anyway, started slowly pouring back and this kind of narrative was you know revealing itself in in my head i guess so anyway we're still filling up on gas so we stopped we, you know filled up the tank and headed over to the butcher's house well he happened to live about a mile east and we asked him what he knew when we got there what do you know about the old distillery and he said well you're standing on the land that this was this plot of land was where the distillery was look across the street and it's just this little two-lane country road we drove up on and across the street a building that we saw driving up we didn't know what it was well it was an original barrel warehouse for the distillery mm. and so we went checked that out still got the rick structure you know no barrels in it anymore but uh and then a little bit behind that is this creek and sitting above the creek on stilts this this little building that held the fermenters back in the day and then uh a little hill on the other side of the creek and about halfway up the hill was this original spring house with the spring still running feeding the creek and uh so you know we saw that drank from the spring and all and uh and then chuck the butcher told us to go back over to greenbrier historical society which is just a little you know a couple blocks back from where we came and had uh you know this one room dedicated to the history of the town of, uh or rather of the distillery the whole thing was dedicated to the town itself and its history but the distillery was a major part of it and so we we walked into this room and it had little old you know kind of artifacts and advertisements and things like that and then there was this glass case in it on the floor with you know among other things these two original bottles of greenbrier tennessee whiskey with our name on it from like the 1870s wow. and it was just like the moment where we knew this is kind of what we're here to do because i was a year out of college and my, charlie still had a semester left and so uh he went ahead and took a business class which was of course very helpful and uh <laughs> and yeah and so then so that was that it, so that's like kind of one part of it and i don't want to take the entire time we have here telling this story but um but from there we started researching the history we knew we still knew almost nothing about it you know only what i only not only that the rumors were true but 
that it was possibly bigger than we thought. Mm -hmm. And so then we started doing the research and yeah, and found out a, a whole lot more. Um, and it was just over the years. And so we've collected all these crazy details about the history and, uh, that the, the reason we're doing it, uh, is because it's all true. Like we didn't have to make anything up or, or embellish anything. It was like, we found these documents and, and all this history is like wild and true. And it was, I mean, back in the day, it was the biggest distillery in the state of Tennessee, uh, fully legal and everything, um, until prohibition. So, wow. Yeah. So you get the information, you're like, oh, wow, we have this history. How do you then dive into learning <laughs> the craft and like yeah. figuring it all out? Like, how did yeah. that come about? Well, yeah. So all the, the, the next step was a, a handful of things, just, you know, to use corporate speak, parallel pathing, a whole bunch of different research, right? So there was our family history research, the there's industry research, just kind of networking, understanding you know, learning what is whiskey. We knew almost, you know, very, very little about whiskey at that time. I mean, mm -hmm. I was kind of, kind of jokingly, I was just coming off a world championship in beer pong. Uh, <laughs> that's where I was at in, in my life, you know, just, just out of college. And so wasn't a huge whiskey connoisseur just yet. Um, and so there's learning that and just talking to people in the industry, like how do you, for one, how do you even run a, a business of any kind and all these things, we knew just nothing. So it was all, you know, the future well ahead of us. And so one of the most important parts was really what gave us the confidence to do what we wanted to do. And that was really a couple things. One, um, first of all, learning the, the actual history, uh, going back to the 18, really 1835. And I'll get into that in a second. Um, and learning that this history was not only so, uh, so long, you know, it's, um, such an old storied true history and kind of wild, like I said, but then hearing the people in the industry who had been in the industry for decades and decades and, you know, high level positions and everywhere in between, um, they told us that, you know, you guys have got to have the best story in the business. Like this just is so you've got, you know, so long as you do this other stuff, right, you've really got something good going here. And so just hearing that from people who knew what they were doing and talking about was like, okay, I feel good about this. Like we have a good foundation to, to really do this and believe in it. Cause if we didn't, you know, I'm not necessarily the most, um, just randomly, uh, confident, self-confident person. You know, if I'm, I can't fake it till you make it is really tough for me. Mm. <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, if I don't really, really believe in something and, uh, it's, it's hard for me to like go full in, you know? So yeah. But, uh, well, while we're sitting here, I might as well just go into the, the history because get it out of the way. Uh, <laughs> I'm interested in it. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so what we found out over, and this is years over the years, we found out little bits and pieces. Uh, we kind of put the puzzle together, but so it starts out in 1835. Uh, my great, great, great grandfather, Charles Nelson was born. So, that's triple great uh, if you're not counting. So he was born in 1835 on the 4th of July, actually, in a small town in Germany called Hagenau, uh, not, not too far from Hamburg. And his father, John Philip Nelson, my quadruple great-grandfather, owned a soap and candle business. And John Philip decided in 1850 that he wanted to sell the family business and everything they owned and had the family uh, move to America. 
So that's exactly what he did. And in the, uh, in the sale of the, the business and their home and everything, he had everything that the family owned converted to gold coin and had special clothing made to hold all of the gold sewn into his, cl his clothing for the boat ride over. So then they hopped on a boat called the Helena Sloman. So Charles was one of six children, his oldest sister. He was the second oldest sibling. His, he had an older sister who had already moved to the States with her husband. But Charles was 15 at this point in 1850. And so he was the oldest sibling on the boat. And so let's see, where was I? So they got on the boat called the Helena Sloman from Hamburg to New York. And while they're at sea, this is October of 1850. While they're at sea, there are big storms and high winds. And they're somewhere off the coast of Newfoundland, Canada, you know, pretty close to final destination. And uh, I don't know if it hit an iceberg or what, but big storms and the boat gets damaged and it is slowly sinking and taking on water. So after about three days, there's an American ship that comes nearby and they signal, you know, SOS or whatever. I guess that's probably a universal maritime equivalent. <laughs> anyway, Morse code. Uh, so uh, this uh, American ship called the Devonshire, you know, comes back to rescue the passengers. And they're just, I mean, think of the movie Titanic, the, right. the rescue boats shuttling people back and forth. So they get to the very final rescue boat and John Philip with the family fortune and gold sewn into his clothing was on the very last rescue boat. Well, that boat capsizes in transfer with, you know, I think it was 12 people on board and they all, of course, drown. Again, I mean, it's iceberg. It's not exactly tropical waters. But again, John Philip had the family fortune and gold sewn into his clothing. So he just sank to the bottom of the Atlantic immediately. So that was the end of him. But the rest of the family had ended up getting to the Devonshire safely and then safely to America, but with literally nothing but the clothes in their back. And so they get there and Charles, again, oldest at that point, is 15 years old. And so he and mom are now kind of head of the household and he finds work at a soap and candle factory in New York called the Hayes and Schultz firm works there for a couple of years. And then, uh, so about 1852, he moves over to Cincinnati, Ohio, where his sister had already lived. So as a, as a, now a Cincinnati and I guess that's what they call it. For the million and two times I've told this story. <laughs> uh, so as a Cincinnati and, uh, he becomes a butcher. Uh, Cincinnati is known as Porkopolis, big pig farming town. So, uh, so he becomes a butcher and learns actually a lot about the sales and production of whiskey because he has these relationships with, uh, with distillers because the animals he's butchering while they're alive are being fed by from spent grain from a nearby distillery. Mm -hmm. So he has, you know, pretty curious fellow, I imagine. So learns a little bit about that. Anyway, then, then uh, about six years later, moves down to Nashville in 1858 and uh, starts his own grocery business downtown, what is on now 2nd Avenue downtown Nashville, but then it was known as Market Street back in those days. And so that was really the foundation, uh, the, the foundation of that business rather was his three best selling products, which were his coffee, meat and whiskey. So those, you know, his, his coffee vendor, his coffee delivery guy and his butcher, uh, kind of were buddies. And what Charles decided was that his, his whiskey was his best selling and most profitable product. And it was being produced distilled rather, uh, at a distillery in Greenbrier, Tennessee, which is about a half hour drive North of Nashville in the modern day. And so what happens is that he was back then it would have been known as rectifying. Nowadays, it's kind of more familiarly known, known as sourcing just taking whiskey distilled from another place and, you know, doing your own thing to it, processing it, blending it, however you want to do it and bottling it and, and labeling it yourself. 
So that's what he did. So he took this distillate and helped, uh, you know, age it and then blend it and bottle it as Greenbrier Tennessee whiskey. And so that became one of the most, you know, uh, popular and profitable brands uh, in the United States back in the day. So he was he was kind of doing very well with it. And he decided, let's let's get out of the grocery business and I'm going to buy the distillery that's distilling my whiskey and let my other two vendors do as they please with their respective products. So uh, his butcher's last name was Hill, and he um, had this business that eventually evolved into what's now known as HG Hill Food Stores, you know, oh, wow. yeah. you know, regional kind of middle Tennessee area grocery yeah. chain. Uh, and then the guy who delivered his coffee's last name was Cheek, Joel Cheek, and he brought that blend up to what was on Fourth Avenue at that time, uh, the Maxwell House Hotel in downtown Nashville. So he takes this brand of coffee, or this blend of coffee to the Maxwell House Hotel, and that's where uh, the Maxwell House brand of coffee got what? started. What? <laughs> that's wild. Yeah, yeah. So cool. Charles, with he purchased the distillery itself with a patent for improved distillation. Uh, this was in 1870 that he actually purchased the distillery itself, and so expanded capacity. And by 1885, he was the largest in the state, one of the biggest in the country, selling. You know, his main product was Greenbrier Tennessee whiskey, which we're you know about to taste the uh, the modern day version of it ourselves here in a minute, but. Uh, but yeah, so that was that. And then, you know, 1891, he, he passed away and left his wife, Louisa, my triple great grandmother to run the distillery. And so at that time she was, you know, a big part of it, obviously she was running the thing, but still she didn't have even the right to vote. Wow. And here is this, uh, this is one of my favorite things is kind of not only like the, the bits and pieces, like the kind of bullet points of, of this story, but also like adding a little context like painting a picture culturally of what was happening so she was a an immigrant woman in the south running this big you know demon whiskey sinful enterprise <laughs> you know uh and so she had all this kind of kind of the deck stacked against her in, in so many ways but she ran the distillery up until 1909 so from 1891 until 1909 when statewide prohibition hit and that was really the end of it and so louise's part in it is a big uh thing that we try to uh keep and put it, you know, into the limelight because back then she had so little, like when we found, for example, her obituary, it, it, it's a little bit more, uh, more than this, but basically her obituary said, you know, Louisa Nelson born 19 or 1838 died in 1918. And here's what her husband did, you know, and oh. it was just, you know, it's just kind of insulting, you know? Yeah. And so she was such a big part of it. She ran it for 18 years. And so, Anyway, we've uh, we've done try to do a lot to. Have you learned more about her story. life? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and a lot about it. You know, part of the things that we're trying to do, like we've created a a liqueur in her kind of to honor her spirit, as we say, Louise's coffee caramel pecan liqueur that's delicious. We we named our still after her. Uh, we have a big mural that we're going to be repainting in the uh, uh, in the production floor. And then we created the Louisa Nelson Awards in her honor uh, to, you know, to do each year celebrating typically Nashville area women doing, you know, making a big difference in their community and in, in one way or another. So, uh, yeah, just trying to bring her name back in, into the light as much as possible. Very cool. Um, anyway, so, yeah, so that was really the end of it. And then I kind of told this story backwards. But and then, yeah, fast forward to 2006 when we rediscovered everything at the butcher's house. And that was that was kind of where it So yeah, started. everything just died from pro in prohibition when that happened. Mm -hmm. And yeah. then it didn't all get rediscovered until that story you told us about the gas station. That's right. Yeah. And we've had, you know, some of the original bottles we have from back in the 1870s. And I didn't know it at the time, but like, 
you know, the first bottle we ever really saw other than the ones at the Greenbrier Historical Society came from my great uncle. He just had it, you know, in, uh, in a closet in his house. He had just kind of forgotten about it, I guess, and didn't know much about it. But, uh, so, so all the land, like the distillery had been sold and everything like that too. So mm -hmm. did you guys get any of that back? Uh, no, not yet. We'd like to, but, uh, it's kind of a cool thing. So the plot, there's a plot right now that, you know, so for one Greenbrier is, uh, it's not exactly New York city, but it's also like, not just the rural countryside. I mean, there's some of that, but it's kind of, you know, it's a town with houses and stuff and, um, kind of like a country suburb kind of feel. And so there are a lot of houses there. And so the actual there, the land was a, quite large, but it's been parceled out into different plots now. So the plot that actually still has the old, that, uh, spring house, the fermenter house and, uh, barrel warehouse, it's a five acre plot, five acre plot, excuse me. That's actually now in the historic national register of historic places. So that's, that's cool. And, uh, and great, but it also belongs to the family that bought it from our family back in 1914. So when prohibition shut the whole thing down in 1909 statewide, they basically were made to stop distilling and they were able to sell off the remaining barrels that they had. And that lasted, you know, effectively till 1914 when they then sold the property and these five brothers bought the property in equal measure. And then as those brothers started to die, they, you know, each left it to all living heirs. So all living heirs of five people over, you know, a hundred years becomes maybe literally hundreds of people who technically own a part of it, whether they know it or not. So, you know, kind of trying to work through uh, mm -hmm. all that little red tape and stuff. Last thing we'd want was to get the land and then have someone come back and say, no, I own part of this land. You, we should have charged, you know, $10 million an acre or whatever. Uh, yeah. Anyway. So long answer to that question. Did that answer the question? No, it did. I don't know. In my head, I, I just think crazy about things sometimes. I don't under, I, I, I just, I'm like, oh, well, you know, you discovered this again. I would think they'd just give you the land and then you guys could just start making whiskey there again. It would be, it would be awesome. Yeah. I mean, we certainly hoped that, but I'll, the other thing is even if we had, it would be the reason I mentioned all the houses around it is because we, we for sure looked into that. Even if, if, you know, however we were able to acquire that land, if, if we were, but the deal is like, it's in a little part where it's, it's just a, a small two lane road with no shoulder or anything. And so like, if we wanted to take that land and build on it, what we would also have to do was buy a bunch of adjacent land mm -hmm. that included people's houses right. so that we could tear the houses down yeah. and build access roads, which when itself would be like cost prohibitive just to get started yeah. in order to spend a bunch more money to build the actual. So it was like so many things yeah. that we didn't like about that. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> um, not only the money, but like, you're just going to buy houses to tear them down. Yeah, that's not, not cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. so, yeah. Do you, um, with the searching, did you come across any recipes or like? We, yeah, we ended up, yeah, it wasn't anything quite as romantic as like, we <laughs> you mean whiskey recipes, right? Yeah, yeah. Just to, you have to define it for oh, a lot of people. What kind of oh, recipes would we be talking well, about? I was going to talk about we found the best peanut butter and jelly <laughs> recipe. Uh, peanut butter and jelly flavored whiskey. I didn't yes. know they were referred to as recipes. I'm sure. Well, I'm not. A, I'm not just. I'm just using layman terms. So what would oh, you call it? It's recipes. Okay. Yeah. See, yeah. I know more yeah. than you or, think. No, I know, I know you know a lot. You've been to a lot of like. He's been to a lot of like you know whiskey tastings and yeah. stuff. Well, the mm -hmm. I bet. 
you may have been thinking of the term mash bill. Does that sound familiar? Maybe. Because that's, that's kind of used interchangeably with whiskey. The mash bill is just the percentage of what grains you use. Oh, okay. Um, and so that's people kind of use that interchangeably. But yeah, we ended up finding, to me, a mash bill is only a part of the recipe. Gotcha. Um, but we ended up finding that. So we had this, uh, in doing all of our research and stuff, uh, we spent hours and hours in the state, city, county archives and things like that. And so I believe, I can't remember if this was down, it was downtown in the, uh, Nashville and the, like the city, or maybe it was the state archives. And my brother found the way that he described it. He had this, like, he felt like Santa Claus with this sack full of nickels, you know, like, a what was it? Yeah. Anyway, he has this funny wording for it. I forgot, but whatever, like Santa Claus with this, <laughs> you know, pillowcase full of nickels on his back yeah. to use for the microfiche machine. And a certain, I feel like I'm pretty close to the cutoff where people don't remember what microfiche was. Um, I don't. People, what is, you what know, is microfiche? Micro, you don't remember that? Uh-uh. Oh, so it was like, uh, it, it was like the, um, like a projector kind of, it was on film, but it, all the, the images were like shrunk down real tiny. And so you'd put it on a film uh, that was like, uh, it was almost like, it was just real tiny. So you could have a bunch of, this is the worst way to explain it. Ever. I'm like really stumbling <laughs> over my words here. It's okay. Uh, but it's microfilm is what they would call like it. Like tiny film. Yeah, it was just tiny film, yeah. but it was like all the newspaper articles and stuff like on it. So it was easier to, and okay. you just put it in a little mini projector. And it was kind of like a, a microscope where you just like, or it shows it up on a screen. Or I think I know what you're talking about. I've seen it in a movie where they yeah. go back and they yeah. go through. Yeah. Any, any movie about name of it, journalism, though. especially okay. uh, in the 80s or 90s or before. Before the anyway, computer. Yeah. So yeah. so this is what we found was a uh, newspaper article from the eighteen like seventies or eighties. And every year they would have a at the distillery up in Greenbrier a picnic on the fourth of July to celebrate, you know, Charles Nelson's birthday and probably I guess it wasn't still the age, whatever, it was still, you know, Independence Day. We're not going back to the sixteen hundreds here. So <laughs> yeah. um but anyway, so they have this picnic there and they'd have all the people about town and politicians and journalists and friends and family, et cetera. And they would also give tours of the distillery. And so, you know, the, Charles's right-hand man, Mr. Bollinger, was kind of the head head of operations and production at that point, head distiller. And so he would give these tours. And uh, the next day printed in the newspaper was a very specific uh, description of the recipe of how to, them, how to make their whiskey. And the reason... That was, I seriously doubt Mr. Bollinger was just volunteering all this information without being asked, but I could also very easily uh, picture a journalist asking some very specific pressing questions on, oh, how do you do this and what temperature and how long do you do that? You know, all those things like specific things. Uh, and so anyway, we found that in the newspaper and that was kind of a, a cool way to do it. But we had it uh, really only kind of confirmed um, in our previous uh, research we had found in archives like old grain receipts and so we could see what grains he would buy in which proportions and it was like an idea of generally what the mash bill probably was mm -hmm. um and it was it was pretty close uh, oh, wow. so yeah that was cool that's cool. very cool <laughs> so you brought some bottles i did whiskey and bourbon yeah real quick yeah. for people that don't know yeah. what people the don't. difference between whiskey and bourbon well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> so uh, the way that I describe it is this. This is a bit confusing and, I'll, and then I'll, I'll, uh, I'll clear it up. So all bourbon is whiskey. Not all whiskey is bourbon. Hmm. So the way that I think of it. And then Tennessee whiskey is yet another layer deep. So 
whiskey is the overarching kind of the umbrella category here. And whiskey is just spirit that has been distilled from grain and aged in a barrel. Okay. So again, you don't know what grains, it could be any grain. You don't know if the barrel has been used or charred or not or whatever, but spirit distilled from grain aged in a barrel, that's whiskey. So then there's bourbon, which is specifically whiskey that is ma uh, made in the United States. So bourbon can be made anywhere in the United States, not just Kentucky, uh, and made from at least 51% corn and aged in unused charred oak containers. So one of the funny things I also like to point out is by TTB law, which is our federal, um, our federal, what do you call it? Regulatory body here for spirits production. Um, they use charred oak containers. So like barrels is just the easiest way to do it. No one's going to store it in a square oak box. Um, hmm. It's hard to get that watertight, but anyway, that's a totally pointless little tangent I went on, <laughs> but yeah, so there's whiskey. <laughs> Spirit distilled from grain aged in a barrel. Bourbon is made in the United States from at least 51% corn and aged in an unused charred oak barrel or container. And then Tennessee whiskey is meets all the criteria of bourbon, but it has to be made specifically that is distilled and aged in the state of Tennessee. Uh, and it undergoes the charcoal mellowing process, which is the way that I describe it for, for our you know process we take our fresh distillate off the still, it's just clear whiskey off the still. And then we run it through a bed of sugar maple charcoal. So, which is just to say it is charcoal from the wood of a sugar maple tree. I think of it as like a giant Brita filter for our whiskey. Hmm. Um, if that helps. Yeah. So that is, that is Tennessee whiskey. So all Tennessee whiskey is bourbon. Not all bourbon is Tennessee whiskey. Okay. That makes sense. What, so what's the reason everyone always thinks that bourbon can only come from Kentucky? It's because there's That's, so many distilleries there. Yeah, I think so. Uh, and traditionally Kentucky bourbon, you know, kind of became a famous thing. Um, but the, I can't remember the name of it, uh, what the act was, but in 1964, uh, Congress dedicated, uh, bourbon as America's native spirit. So bourbon is specifically an American, a uniquely and specifically American thing. Uh, it just happens. I think that most of it comes from was Kentucky. been and probably still yeah. is made in Kentucky. Okay, mm. that makes sense. Well, tell us about the uh, the whiskey bourbons that you brought, and then we'll talk yeah. about the cheese yeah. that we're going to try with it. Great. So we've got uh, four whiskeys here. So we've got Nelson's Greenbrier Tennessee whiskey, which is what we're going to try first, and we've got Nelson Brothers Classic Bourbon, Nelson Brothers Reserve Bourbon, and then Nelson Brothers Sherry Cask Finished Bourbon. Mm. So we're going to try them in that order. So to start out, we've got Greenbrier Tennessee whiskey. So this is a weeded Tennessee whiskey, and this is the original recipe. I'll show everyone on the on the camera here. Yeah, the original label. Um, in fact, even the original glass bottle molds. So we took uh, some of the original. Love that sound. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, <laughs> glad we got that. Uh, so had some original bottles from the 1870s um, at the distillery that we've collected over the years, and had it 3D scanned, and had uh, from that 3D scan. Uh, created this glass mold for this bottle. But uh, as far as the recipe goes, this is a, a weeded Tennessee whiskey, meaning it is made with wheat instead of rye. So the, the main components of this are corn, wheat, and malted barley. So this will be important for the, the next three we taste as well. So while this is weeded, wheat and rye in a whiskey will present themselves as kind of opposite ends of the flavor spectrum in terms of, of whiskey styles, meaning that 
wheat is, and in fact, if, if it helps to visualize, think of them, I mean, these grains make bread too, right? Wheat bread, say cornbread, rye bread, they're different, different things altogether. So uh, wheat in a whiskey will be a little sweeter, a little softer, kind of a flavor profile. Uh, whereas rye gives uh, a little more punch, a little spicy, peppery kind of a thing. The corn is, of course, a lot of the sweetness will come from the corn. Um, and then the barley is kind of a, it, it's its own unique thing. I mean, you'll, t you'll, you'll see it or hear people talk about it as this malty thing, which uh, certainly makes a lot more sense if you know, you know, Scotch whiskey or perhaps American single malt whiskey, what, what to make of when someone says it tastes malty or mm -hmm. there's a malted aspect to it. It's hard for me to even describe it in words, uh, but it for me, I kind of like know it when I taste it, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. So with tasting, is there a certain way to taste? You know, in, in the wine world, you, you sure. know, yeah. you swirl, you sniff, yeah. you swirl. You yeah. Know? Th so my big thing is there are no wrong answers. There is no, you know, such it, the truly the only right answer is whatever you enjoy doing. So with that, kind of some guidelines that will help um, for you to decide what is the right answer for you are the way that I do it is it's, you know, it's still a spirit, but it's much, much more high alcohol than wine, for example. So you don't want to just like put your nose into <laughs> yeah. it, it'll burn your nose. <laughs> so what I do is I'll, I go as though I'm about to take a first sip. I'll put my mouth on the glass and then I'll breathe in through my mouth and my nose. So I get a little bit in my nose, but the vapors kind of on the back of my palate no. of my tongue. Oh. So you get the, you kind of, taste the vapors with your yeah. tongue. Yeah. You're kind of tasting the nose of the spirit. Uh, and that's very, very helpful. You get a lot more robust idea of the nose. And especially if you're trying to write tasting notes and things like that for, for the nose, that's very helpful. And that's kind of how I do it. Um, and then the next would be to actually just taste a, take a sip, which is probably not any different from wine. You know, you just let it kind of let it roll around your tongue every part of your mouth, get every taste bud on it and see how it reacts differently. But the, the very biggest key to this is just being present and sitting in the moment, just like focus on it and it alone. Uh, and one of my favorite things about tasting a whiskey or food or any, you know, wine, anything is that it is, and this is the key to being, you know, no wrong answers here. It is uniquely your experience here you know, no one can ever tell you, oh, no, there isn't this note in it. There's only X, Y, and Z. Yeah. So what if you don't get what they get and vice versa? Right. So much of it has to do with like, maybe it's a, you know, a very specific dessert recipe that your grandmother used to make and you love that thing. You know, you have that aroma in your, in your mind bank forever. And it's like that unlocks something in the whiskey that you're like, oh, this reminds me of that. That's specific to you and no one else is going to get that. And that to me is like, one of the biggest kind of pieces of magic about this. It's like there, there's no need to be like intimidated about it. Um, for whiskey, there are a lot of people who are kind of intimidated, but that's, that's the thing that I tell them is like, think about, you know, your grandma's kitchen or whatever it is that kind of has these aroma, specifically aroma, it's, you know, closest scent tied to memory. But um, anyway, tangent again, good words. That's, just yeah, kind that's of, awesome. Yeah. And then the finish again, just sit there and let it, you know, just swallow it, let it hit every part of it's your mouth. It's super and smooth up front. You already tried it? Yeah, oh, I tried man. it. Well, hey, cheers, you guys. Cheers. Yeah, cheers. cheers. <laughs> awesome. Mm. So this one is um, the barrels that we have with this whiskey are between four and six years old. And this is 91 proof. Whew. So it's good. It's good. <laughs> it's... 
really smooth. I know. I'll get the the kind of classic uh, bourbony notes to me. Yeah, caramel, vanilla, mm-hmm. even a little bit of like cherry almost. Mm-hmm. To me, uh, wheat whiskeys or weeded whiskeys will um, present to me a little bit of something cherry. In yeah. There. Um, and I get that a lot more in the in the finish. I get like, the caramel a lot. You know, it's actually mm-hmm. kind of weird. So I lived in Colorado for a while. 10 years and I'd go out in the woods and there's these trees and I would teach people this trick. If you'd go up to them, certain parts of the wood, they'd be really, really like kind of this orange color. And if you smelled that part of the bark, it smelled like caramel, Mm. like a, like seriously, it was crazy. Like these trees. And when I drank, like it took me right to that moment. Like, yeah, it's so weird. They had like a butterscotch smell. I don't know what, uh-huh. what the, I don't know. I have to maybe Google what that tree was, but. Yeah, I can, yeah. I mean, butterscotch is a really good thing to yeah. look for. And butterscotch. Then, you know, this is the other thing with whiskey and, and it's with wine or whatever too, is, you know, it just takes practice, you know, get your reps in and build your vocabulary and kind of like, you know, that's why they're again, no wrong answers. You're not going to tell someone who just started out at the gym who can only bench press a hundred pounds, like, no, you're doing it the wrong way. Cause you're not benching, you know, 360 or whatever. Yeah. Loser. They just started, you know, <laughs> they're going on their own way. <laughs> I like that. What? Get your reps in. I know. Drinking. Well, I mean, we get our reps in all I know, the time. I know. Every day. I can tell I'm a big weightlifter myself. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you suggested some cheeses to go with these whiskeys, which was really mm. helpful. So I picked these up from Trader Joe's and the first one, I think it's the honey goat cheese. Right? Or no, am I going no. in the wrong? Sharp, I'm in the wrong. Sharp, oh, sorry, sharp, sharp cheddar. cheddar. I'm in the wrong. Yeah, yeah. Mine slipped or wrong. Okay, sharp cheddar. Yes. So I'm excited to eat some of this with the whiskey. So the sharp cheddar I picked because for one, I love, I mean, I love all cheese, so that's not unique to this plate. But like, given the sweeter, softer um, flavor of this Greenbrier Tennessee whiskey, this weeded whiskey. I like the idea of the sharp kind of punch to to balance the softer um, aspect of the whiskey. Um, mm. And then as you'll see, I tried to balance things uh, yeah. as far as the flavor profile. I mean, that's the whole point of pairing something. It's yeah. kind of crazy because yeah. it, cha- it, cha- it changages it as you say. Yeah, as you yeah. eat the mm-hmm. cheese and then you drink it. Mm-hmm. The saltiness adds something totally different. Yeah. Well, okay. when we picked this, you know, we were talking and – talking about trying whiskeys and what could we pair it with and everything. And the cheese idea came up and I was telling some people and they're like, you cheese and whiskey. And I was like, but going on the internet and looking at, it's a big thing. Mm. It's a huge deal. Yeah. You know, and this first one tastes amazing. Yeah. Thank you. Mm. And thank you Trader Joe's for helping. That also tastes amazing. (laughs) Love it. Yeah, that it really helps, I guess, even calm the the whiskey down, like the cheese and the the pairing, you know? Yeah. It's very nice. I know. It's really, really, really good. You want to move on to the next one? Yeah. I got water to rinse out the glass if you need to. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, the next one is going to be Nelson Brothers Classic Bourbon. So this here is a high rye bourbon. So this is whiskey from three different states, from Tennessee, from Kentucky, and from Indiana. And it's all high rye bourbons from those states blended together to create this particular flavor profile. So the bourbons uh, in here are in the barrel for between five and seven years old. Well, they're in the barrel for between five and seven years. Uh, And the 
proof on this is 93.3. So again, given that this is a high rye bourbon, the rye being more spicy, peppery, that kind of a thing. The idea with this whiskey is to be as versatile as possible, whether someone likes to drink it neat or on the rocks or in a cocktail or whatever stands up really well in a cocktail. And rye spice gives it a really nice backbone so that the whiskey doesn't just kind of drown in whatever it's being mixed in with the cocktail. Mm -hmm. So that's always very good. Um, but we're pairing this one with a Buffalo mozzarella, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I figured it was like, uh, yeah, the, the mozzarella to kind of temper that rye spice, not that the rye spice is too much. It's like, to be honest, I think it's just enough, but, mm. uh, <laughs> But Sets you know, in the, the head distiller, yeah, in the uh, <laughs> well, in the yeah. kind of inverse way that the sharp cheddar balanced the softness of the Tennessee whiskey, the kind of soft, both physical softness and flavor wise of the mozzarella could balance the kind of rye spice of the. I love this. I guess you're talking. I'm just like eating and yeah. drinking, and I'm like, yeah. I want you to be around whenever I'm just drinking and eating, and you can kind of, you know, be the be the background <laughs> description I'll of narrate what I'm enjoying. <laughs> that is so good together. I love, love, love this one. I feel like I could just, yeah, completely drink this straight in a glass and enjoy it. This mm. is one of my favorites. I've had the classic before, and yeah. it's a go-to. I love it. Mm -hmm. So smooth, so good. Thank wow. You. I love, love, love this. Might need to ask a question so I can just kind of <laughs> enjoy this for a second. Uh, wait, well, tell me about, um, so like now, like what does the operation look like now? Mm -hmm. So we are, so we're in the Marathon Village area of right near downtown Nashville. And we're actually, as, uh, as we record this, we are really just a couple, you know, two, three weeks um, out from opening a new part of our facility and that would be a bar and restaurant. So when we first started out in this building, it was 2014 and we started out with, you know, offices, production floor, you know, a little bit of a barrel warehouse and uh, tasting room and event space. And so we're now expanding, adding a bar and restaurant uh, and keeping, just kind of expanding all the other portions of it, expanding our offices and tasting room and, and, you know, mercantile gift shop area and such, but adding the bar and restaurant. So we're really, really excited about that. Um, and yeah, we're open for tours and tastings every day of the week. Um, so please, please come by, you know, check it out. We're, I don't personally have any social media, so, but, uh, you're a smart man. Yes. Thank you. I know. I know. <laughs> I wish we could do that. <laughs> well, it's hard to do this. I mean, I've, I've been asked so many times. I have my own podcast not to step on toes. Oh, or anything. Yeah. oh yeah. I don't, it's like we promote it on the, the website and the other socials, but I don't do any of it myself. I just, I just interview people and have fun with it. But yeah. what's the name of the podcast so people can go search for it? Uh, it's called still life. Okay. Still life. Uh, yeah. yeah. Pun as intended as possible. Yeah. Many, many, <laughs> lever, many yeah. levers of that. Everybody um, check out his podcast. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so that's what we've got going on. And um, are you excited? Nervous? Uh, I'm. I, I'm very excited. I'm actually not really that nervous, just because we've built such a good team. You know, we have a lot of great people with us, and you know, chef, sous chef, the whole the whole kitchen staff. Uh, you know, is going to be really great, and we're very excited about that. Uh, and the rest of the staff. I mean, the hospitality staff that we have is is pretty phenomenal. So they, I'm kind of like I. The only thing I can do is probably screw it up. So they're they're much better at that than I am. How many people do you guys employ? Well, um, right around fifty ish before the um, 
before the bar and restaurant. So now they're, you know, we're hiring something like in the middle of 30 to 40 more. Wow. Um, you know, a lot it, between both part-time and full-time, but just human beings employed uh, by us uh, somewhere around 80, 90 by the time it's all done. And going back on your story, when you, you know, came across and found the history of this to fast forward, like you're employing 90 people that if right. they wouldn't have stepped into, right. You know, the oh, history it's just, of just it, amazing. Like, they would never be working. It's just wild how things just work out and it's fate. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Things are just meant yeah. to be. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome, dude. Thank you. All right. You want to move on to the next one? I don't want to, but I will. Let's do it. <laughs> I want so to this keep one's, savoring this. This one's going to be even better. If that's even possible. So this is Nelson Brothers Reserve. Wait, you got So this reserve is going to be similar to the uh, classic, but as I put it, a little older and a little bolder. Older so, and bolder. And bolder. Yeah. Sounds so, like me. Whereas classic was, <laughs> you know, between five and seven years of age, uh, the reserve is closer to averaging seven, eight, nine years old um, and at 107.8 proof. Oh, my God. Oh. So a lot of big flavors in there. Oh, this um, nose is... Oh, smells gosh. so good. That's a lot of the caramel and the butterscotch, too, like you were mm. talking about. Yeah, and I'll get, like, a little bit of, like, tobacco. Yeah. yeah totally. like pipe store kind of yeah. thing, yeah. which is pretty cool. Yeah, I want a candle out of this smell. Yeah. Do you smoke cigars? Every now and then. I'm not, like, a a guy who has a humidor or a bunch of cigars yeah. all the times, yeah. but... Um, there's something that I like envy about those guys, but it just seems like such a fun thing. My brother smokes cigars a lot more than I do. Oh, I um, love this. Oh my <laughs> gosh. Yeah. And for, I mean, as high proof as it is, it's really, really smooth. Yeah. How the heck is it that high proof when it doesn't like burn? It's the magic of it. I mean, it really It's is... all because of the head distiller. <laughs> well, we have with his magic wand. The master. Well, we just have, <laughs> we just have, uh, I mean, honestly, to, we do have a really good team around us. So like our blending mm. and bottling teams and, you know, our, our kind of sensory team, I guess you could call it when we're, we take whiskeys from all over the place, you know, the, so the Nelson brothers is not our own distillate. Greenbrier, Tennessee whiskey is our own distillate. The Nelson brothers is sourced, which is to say we buy from other distilleries. And so I think of our uh, barrel inventory, like as our spice rack. So in that way, when I see it, I see the more kind of exotic our spice rack can be, the more interesting, unique, complex our final blends in the bottle can be. And so that's helpful when you're trying to create something that's maybe, you know, high proof, but also entirely drinkable quite easily. And so sometimes they're just little, you know, you add, you know, you change the percentage of one component by 2%. And it's like, yes, that's it, where it was kind of missing something before. Mm. And so it's just like, you know, it's... <laughs> Waking up at the crack of noon, tasting whiskey, you know, ain't yeah. easy, but it's a rough job, <laughs> but it, it's for sure one of the perks of the job, but it still is our job. And so, uh, you know, we can only taste really three. We typically will, will limit ourselves to like four samples at a time, uh, you know, because you get palate fatigue. It's like, it, oh, yeah. yeah, I was going to ask, okay. do you guys, anymore. um, like with wine, do you like, like with whiskey, do you spit? I don't just okay. and typically no one on our team does. Yeah. I'm not offended by people, but I, it's just a different what, because to me, what is so important is the finish in the whiskey. Yeah. No, you want to feel it all the way, way down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. So, and then you chose a cheese with this one. So this is the Brie. Yeah. Um, and so this one, again, obviously Brie going to be a little softer 
both physically, but also flavor wise, but it has like a little punch to it, uh, mm. which I really love. I, you know, baked breeze quite a mm. fantastic delicacy but again yeah to balance the kind of that big punchy rice spice in here a little something softer um to just go with it that's that also has a bit of, of kind of punch to itself i was just thinking like this is going to be like a new christmas tradition we drink this whiskey with brie mm -hmm. mm. i love that idea i know it's the best idea you've come up with all day <laughs> mm. very very good thank you delicious that's oh, a killer combination. That right is actually, there. I like that love is, that combination. Yeah. That's really, really good. Yes. Seriously. Like I feel like it enhances the brie and it enhances the whiskey. Brings out more These crackers more. don't hurt either. These look, are good. Look, Andy, I tell everyone about these crackers. Okay. <laughs> these crackers, any cheese you ever want to pair, this is the cracker. Okay. So these are the multi-grain crackers from Trader Joe's. Yeah. It's a white box with a green label, green at the top. And I'm not kidding. You want a cracker that's going to go with any cheese? You get these crackers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. Mm. Oh, that's, that's oh, good. Yeah, that's the pairing. So, so good. Get All a right. load of this next one. Oh. <laughs> so, so you guys came out with a cask series. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I know you have, um, you're pouring the sherry, obviously. And then you have a Mouvedra. And you have uh, honey, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So um, what we're doing here is the sherry cask finish. And so this is the, if I'm not mistaken, this is the reserve blend. So this is the whiskey that we just tried uh, that we take and then finish in a used sherry cask. So we uh, specifically use Oloroso sherry casks from Spain. So they give it to me, again, no wrong answers here. It's whatever you get from it. But... To me, this one gives it like a, a creamy, nutty vanilla extra thing to it that isn't in the whiskey by itself. You know, it's just what that sherry cask adds to it. So, um, you know, the the whiskey, the bourbon itself has a bit of the sweetness because it's mostly corn, but then the rye gives it that spice and then the sherry cask, that dry, creamy, nutty vanilla. Mm. Right. Okay. And we're pairing this one with a goat cheese. Mm. I honestly, this is my first thought because it's just like sherry. If you think about sherry itself as a wine, you know, a fortified wine, it just goes with goat cheese yeah. quite well. And um, I, I picked out a honey goat cheese. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so hopefully that's okay. Oh, 100%. Oh, but again, this sherry cask is so smooth. Mm. Gosh. So this is 100 proof. Mm. Sherry cask. Wow. Okay, I'm excited to try that. The goat cheese with this because looking online a lot of whiskey bourbon people are talking about goat cheese and sherry really sherry cast yeah mm. you've been hearing that uh-huh well not to discount our choice or anything i think this cheese would go with anything really this cheese is so good it's really good i know yeah. i love the honey goat cheese mm. we put it with some like red pepper um jam one time yeah yeah i mean it was really good it it's, was kind of spicy yeah. but well the sweet to balance the spice is yeah. so good I know. Oh, that's delicious. That is so good. That's like, yeah, that's the most desserty one I think we've had. Money that's, works mm. works well for the last. Yeah. One. So you feel like that cheese could go with any of the any of them? Oh hell yeah! Because no honey, so like honey is such a. I mean, we've done a honey cask finish whiskey, and it's mm -hmm. like it's pretty fantastic. If I yeah. do say so myself, but also honey is just like such an obvious thing with whiskey. Uh huh. 
is, yeah. I mean, so many cocktails, you know, include yeah. honey or it's just something that pairs so perfectly with the, the flavors of whiskey that it's like you really can't go wrong with it. Yeah. Wow. Well, this has just been so insightful. I feel like you're also a historian, which has been fun. Like I can tell that you're passionate about that. Um, and I love that. And I just, you know, we were talking when we weren't on, on here, but just the, how this legacy and how this was fate and how you, you know, you came to that gas station that day for a reason. Mm -hmm. And then it was like, your purpose came from your ancestors, you know, and everything that they did has made you and where you guys are now today. And I just, I, that's what I love about life and humanity and that there's a story and that you guys have this incredible story and this history and it makes drinking the whiskey even more fun and enjoyable knowing that like, wow, like this happened so long ago and that it's being carried on through another generation. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Yeah. I just, I, I think you guys are going to continue to last. So yeah. thank you. Yeah. What I really appreciate that because it's, you know, it's, been so long like the to overuse the word again our journey mm. uh has taken i mean this is 2006 that we started and i was a year out of college so it's been you know almost half of my lifetime trying to first of all get this started and then quite a few years later finally getting it started and then just growing it's like i never feel like we're fully at the starting line yet it's like always one mm -hmm. more thing to go before we can say we've really started but um but yeah, I mean, you're right. Without the, our our family history, we would not have gotten into the spirits world. It just was not something that I had a natural passion for it. And so that's it's so exciting to me to and interesting to hear, you know, uh, because it's my uh, experiences. I got into this via you know our family history, and that was my passion that ignited via that. And so it's I don't know. It's a lot of fun to just kind of talk to people about what they you know, what brought them into this industry and, and it's all different angles and it's all, you know, right. Again, still no wrong answers for that either. It's just, however you, however you arrive there, we're all kind of, we're all in the same, uh, the same industry with the, you know, similar passions, but slightly different angles on it. Yeah. yeah. But it you, seems it's so fun and cool. And I mean, you could have been a banker. Oh God. <laughs> Theoretically, I, I would never have gotten it. I would have never what would you been doing instead of a head distiller? What would you be? Uh... Um, more likely than anything, probably video editing. Okay. So, yeah, right. because right out of college, before I we discovered this, I uh, started doing video editing. Had no experience in it. Yeah. Started as the low man on the totem pole. You know, uh, it was at my dad's company. He had a software publishing, like educational software, teaching kids how to read yeah. and write and stuff. Mm. Uh, they just hired me for nothing um, right out of college to start doing video editing for little interviews and stuff, very simple stuff, but I really enjoyed it and it fit my particular kind of skill set pretty well. And before we knew that we were going to do the distillery, I thought maybe I could really do this. Maybe I'll move back out to LA and try to, you know, work on movie trailers or something to start out. But um, for better or worse, that's not the way it turned out. Yeah. So, well, we thank you so much. Thanks for your We're excited. Time. You said you got twins on the way, yeah. which is awesome. Yeah. yeah. Um, I just think that uh, that's great and yeah. your life and you're an awesome person and you've been so fun to talk to. Yeah. Thank you. So, thank you, guys. Cheers, cool. Andy. Cheers, Cheers and Nelson Brothers. I got to sing it on the way out. Rain makes corn. <laughs> corn makes whiskey. Whiskey makes <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>